0: so tonight I'm going to ask you to focus in on what God is saying and and to ask him to speak to you. Can we do that? Say amen. Amen. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse number 8, it's the next beatitude that we come to. And here's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hey, let's read that together out loud. It's up here on the screen. Ready? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you're anything like me and you've been reading ahead to try and figure out where are we going to be for the morning sessions and the night sessions, I used to do that at camp growing up, and I would be excited about particular verses, and then there were some that I would see on the horizon, and I would go, that's going to be the one that if I could skip any service, that's the one. And... If you've been reading ahead and you've anticipated this verse, maybe you're going, oh no, here goes another one. Another one of those messages, another one of those talks where, I'm sure you've heard it, is this going to be, it says pure in heart. And anytime we come to the word purity, people have got something to say about about you know, sex, and we're anticipating the references to the dangers of STDs or pornography, and you're thinking, I've heard it, I've heard it, I know it, I know it. Let me just put your heart at ease, friend, tonight. I am not here to tell you what I think you ought to do or ought not to do with your body. In fact, I'm not even here to judge you by having a different standard than me i'm not here to tell you what to think it's been my goal this week and i hope that it is our ongoing goal in ministry to teach you not just what to think but how to think and what jesus thinks about particular subjects and so tonight I want to let you know that purity doesn't just equal sexual issues. It has such a deeper implication than that. And I'm here to call your attention to a letter written by a man named Matthew where he's recording verbatim the words that were spoken by Jesus. And what you do with it is completely up to you. That's your choice. But I'm here to tell you that Matthew recorded this and Jesus spoke this for such a good reason. Now Jesus said so many things that were never written down. We have no clue all of the conversations that Jesus would have had with his disciples. We have no idea every word that exited his lips during his 33 years on earth in a physical body. So when things are recorded that Jesus said, we'd better pay close attention to them because God said of all of the things that Jesus is saying, these are some very important words. And Matthew, if he were standing here tonight, he would say, oh my goodness, I learned so much from what Jesus didn't say, but I learned a lot from what Jesus did say and this will change your life. But if we're going to understand why Matthew is recording all of this, I think it's important that we get to know Matthew a little bit. Let's get to know Matthew because this is not just a book. Matthew's a person and he followed Jesus. But when you understand his background, all of a sudden, some of the things that he says makes a whole lot more sense. So let's go to Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, we're hearing the story of when Matthew is being called by Jesus. And in verse number 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose up and followed him. Now, in the New Testament, you'll find Matthew referred to by a few different names. Matthew, or in some cases, uh, Levi, um, tax collector, or sometimes referred to as a publican. Now, you've got to know this about publicans or tax collectors. They're corrupt Jews. They're people that are hated by their former friends and family. They're outcasts of their whole culture because they have been a traitor to the nation of Israel. They've joined the team of the Roman government. But worse than that, tax collectors were known for collecting from the population more than what was required. And everything that was extra, they got to keep for themselves. One... Notable tax collector in the New Testament is named Zacchaeus. And he was hated because he's a traitor, but also because he was a thief. We find that when he comes to know Jesus, he can't even remember how much he stole from people. That's how much he stole. And so he's like, I'm going to pay back four times what I might have taken just to make sure that everything is good. And you got to know this about Matthew he's hated. He's not allowed to have dinner with his own blood relatives. He's hated by his former friends. When Jews passed by, this Jew named Matthew, they would spit in his general direction. This is, this is a guy who's a tax collector. What's funny is, as you read the New Testament, you'll find that Jesus is getting accused of hanging out with the wrong crowd. But what's funny about that accusation is they'll go, Jesus is friends with sinners. Okay, who's a sinner? What's a sinner? Throw out, like, what, what, what's a sin? Give me a, a sin. Give me a really bad sin. Stealing. Murder. Murder. Stealing. What's another one? Liar. Liar. Adultery. Molester. Yeah, they, we, don't even, we don't need to go on. I'm scared of how much deeper we would get if we kept the list going, but... These are sinners, okay? Murderer, molester. And then they said Jesus hangs out with sinners and publicans. Tax collectors were so hated, they didn't even get to be lumped in with the murderers. They had their own category of sinner. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he looks at this tax collector and he says, follow me, (laughs) things are about to get interesting. You know, spending time with a tax collector could immediately ruin a good Jew's reputation. In fact, when Matthew throws a banquet for Jesus and his current disciples, I don't know whether he was trying to learn about who Jesus was and get to know him more or whether he wanted to demonstrate his incredible wealth that he had accrued through his position. Not sure. I know one thing, though. It didn't stop the Pharisees from questioning the company of Jesus and his disciples. In other words, they were guilty by association. So when they see Jesus with this guy named Matthew, they're like, Jesus is just as bad for even hanging out and eating with someone so awful as Matthew. So Jesus responds to the Pharisees' pointed fingers, and Matthew records verbatim what Jesus says in chapter 9, verse 12, because Jesus' response would have blown Matthew's mind and angered everyone who was listening. He's being called out by the religious people. He's being called out for being with Matthew. And so all ears are on Jesus, all eyes fixed on Jesus. How is he going to defend his choice in dinner companions when Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he looks at the Pharisees and he says a phrase that I want to explain to you. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Jesus here is quoting at the end of verse number 13. He's quoting an Old Testament passage from the book of the prophet of Hosea. And so when Jesus looks at the Pharisees, they're like the the, the church leaders, if you will, when he looks at them and he says, hey, go learn what this means, and then he quotes the Old Testament, it would be like me looking at, you know, Kobe Bryant and being like, hey, why don't you go learn how to play some basketball? And he's going to look at me and be like, excuse me? It, it, it would be like me, me looking at Peyton Manning and going, hey, come here, bud. <laughs> I, when I was in high school... Um, I, my first job was working for a, a company that, that Peyton Manning and a few of the Indianapolis Colts owned. And so I met those guys, and let me just tell you, one thing that I never said to them was, Shh, you guys need to go learn how to play football. It would be like an insult. It would be like if you showed up at church on Sunday and you looked at your pastor and you're like, hey, why don't you go learn the Bible? Better not. Right, Pastor Monroe? Jesus is offending the Pharisees here, and he says, hey, go learn what this means. He's saying, you don't even understand what the Bible says. You're not even getting it. You're here accusing me of hanging out with this guy when you've preached, you've taught, you've studied, but you don't understand that I came not to call the righteous, but I came for sinners. Now, at this point, we've seen Jesus heal people. We've seen Jesus perform miracles. He's cast out demons. He's... Done all kinds of miracles like feeding thousands. And I'm here to tell you that the biggest motivator for someone like Matthew following Jesus wasn't the miracles. You know, if a tax collector gets up from their table, the Roman law says that they don't get to keep their job anymore. While you're on your shift, you stay at that table and you don't get up there's a roman guard there to make sure nobody steals but you're there as the accountant to make sure that no coin is unaccounted for the roman law said if a jewish tax collector gets up from their table they lose their job and they can never get it back they're leaving too much money on the table And when Jesus comes by and he says, Matthew, follow me. Get up from your table. Leave it behind. Matthew left a lot of money on the table to follow Jesus. What was it that would compel people like Matthew who were hated, who were outcasts, who were unliked and rejected? What would motivate them to leave everything on the table and follow Jesus? You want to know what it was? His love. You know, people who were not like Jesus, liked Jesus. And Jesus liked people who were not like him. And that's why he says, go and learn what this means. I came in mercy. And I came for one group of people. I didn't come for the perfect people. No perfect people allowed in God's kingdom. Nope. I came for the sinners because I came to redeem them. I came to restore them. I didn't come so that they would have to sacrifice to me. No. I came so that I could sacrifice my life for them. And boy, did he ever. In fact, you can read Matthew's detailed, educated description and depiction of how they took Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 27. How they stripped him. How they plucked his beard. How they beat him. How they whipped him. How they put a crown of thorns in his head and shoved it down to the blood rolled out, how they crucified him. Dead three days and three nights, he who knew no sin was crucified along the street like a common criminal. This perfect, compassionate, generous, loving man named Jesus, albeit Matthew would say at this point, we're wondering if he wasn't crazy. Um, we didn't know what to do. If Matthew was on this platform tonight telling you the story, he would be honest enough, I'm sure, to say we were terrified. And we thought that the people who killed Jesus were coming for us next. And on the night that Jesus was crucified, it was as if we hung our hope on a cross and we buried our life's purpose in a tomb. There was nothing left to do. That's why we're hiding And shaking in a locked room. And then. And then Mary saw him alive. And then Peter and John ran to the tomb and the stone had been moved and the seal was broken. The soldiers were gone. The garment was folded and Jesus was nowhere to be found. And without any warning, I, Matthew, the former tax collector, now endangered Jesus follower, hiding in this room, I saw him walk through the wall right into the room where I was. And I spoke to him and I saw him and we touched his scars and we knew that he was Alive, and I dedicated my life to following him and I would die a martyr's death preaching that Jesus is alive and he's God. And the last thing that Jesus said to Matthew was so compelling that he wrote it down in chapter 28. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and then teach them teach them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold I'm with you always to the end of the age and Matthew would say so what I'm writing to you right now I'm writing because Jesus told me to teach you what he commanded me with and I'm writing it because this perfect man predicted his death and he predicted his resurrection and he pulled it off in God's power because he's the son of God and I saw him with my own eyes and so I'm going to tell you as much as I can about what he had to say because I saw him only God could do that Matthew would say I saw God and if you want to see him too good news I know the way Jesus preached it over and over again we're reading it now in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 if you want to see God, do you want to see Him? All in favor of seeing God? Yeah. Matthew said, here's the roadmap. It's true. I think you'll find it interesting. Matthew 5, verse number 8, we've read it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now this week we've talked about how blessed, this word makarios, it translates happy. But it's not happiness like the world describes happiness. This is a happy with a self-contained power source and secret that it can only be truly known and found and experienced in Christ. Happiness can only truly be known in Christ. And I want to be happy. All in favor of being happy, say amen. Amen. We want to be happy, but here's the thing. Everyone wants to be happy. Even your unsaved friends really want to be happy. And that's why they're turning to things like sex. Because sex makes me happy, or so I think. They think that porn makes them happy. You think that uh, indulging in that substance makes you happy. You think that filling your mind with inappropriate fantasy will make you happy. You think that dressing in such a way to get the attention of another person is going to make you happy. You think that posting photos online to make people look at you is going to make you happy. You think that using that type of language like cursing and insults and sarcasm and rudeness and gossip, you think that's going to make you happy and I could go on and on until I hit every one in the room but i don't need to do the holy spirit's job the truth of the matter is you already know the thing to which you cling because pleasure is your king there's a thing in your life that you're clinging to and you're proving that you don't want christ's happiness what you really want is a hit of pleasure and jesus says what i have to offer is so much better do you want to be happy If you'll be honest with yourself, none of those things have ever lasted. None of them have ever been effective. And like Matthew the tax collector, you're living a life that's filled with things, but it's unfulfilled. You're unsatisfied. And we, like Matthew was a traitor against his own country, we're traitors against our own happiness. And we're enemies of our own joy, because ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. And ain't nobody going to make my decisions. And if I want to do it, I'm doing it because I'm in control of my own life. But friend, tonight, let's just get real that after that release and after that post and after that preview and after that scroll and after that encounter and after that joke and after that movie, the pleasure is fleeting and happiness is nowhere to be found. And people are saying it. You've said it this week in your small groups. I just can't hold on to happiness no matter how much I try. And so I keep going back to the same sin over and over and darker and darker and deeper and deeper. And I want to be happy. But... Every time, this satisfies a little less and a little less and a little less. And so maybe you're here because your parents made you or a friend tricked you. Or maybe you've got to keep up the religious show that you put on on the outside. But I know one thing is true. No matter what brought you here, the truth of the matter is we want, we need. It is the desperate desire of every human being to know God and to see God. And maybe you're wondering if he's real. And if he works, and so, friend, good news, we can talk to Matthew about this, and we can say, Matthew, you were a sinner, the worst kind. People hated you, and, and, and you were an outcast, but, but Jesus saw you, and you saw him, and it changed your life forever. So, Matthew, Matthew, can you help me? And he would say, yes. Let me tell you what Jesus said. Blessed are the pure in heart they shall see God. Note takers write this down. You've got to know that purity has one goal. Seeing God. Seeing God is the ultimate goal of being pure. Because if purity for you or if holiness is this rule book it's a checklist. It's a religious thing that you do, but your heart is not pure. Uh, Jesus said over and over in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he said, you heard it said, but I say unto you. So let me just reaffirm what Jesus said. You've heard it said that well, you have to actually do something physically to be impure. But Jesus said, no, nope, you can do something mentally and be impure in the sight of God. I mentioned this the other day, and I want to just explain it a little further. Notice it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, not blessed are the virgins. Good thing, because some of us in the room would have to admit, oh, I, I lost my virginity. Uh oh, Jesus said that looking lustfully makes you just as guilty, and many of us would have to say, Uh oh, I've looked lustfully. I've sinfully tainted my story, so, so um, does that mean I can't see God? I, I, I want you to know, hey, religious friend, that's like, oh, I've never done that. Virginity does not guarantee purity. They're not one and the same. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hey, friend, you might have lost your virginity, and I'm, I'm sorry about that sinful choice. But you can recapture purity. You can recapture pure in heart. Well, hey, Matthew, what was it like? What does it mean to see God? Well, let me just tell you what it means to see God. It doesn't mean that God's just going to walk in this room and we're going to see him. It means a few things. First of all, it means encountering his presence. What does it mean to see God? Well, you'll encounter his presence. At the close of a class in school, if your teacher says to you, hey, can I see you for a second? They're not saying, can I see your Instagram? They're not saying, can I see a photo of you? They're not saying, can I get just a quick little flash smile and then you walk out into the hallway. If a teacher says, hey, can I see you for a second? They want to have an extended time of one-on-one, face-to-face. And when Jesus says that the pure in heart will see God, this isn't just a... A real quick thing, no. It's not at a distance, it's a up close and personal. It's an appointment. It's access. Seeing God means there can be some one-on-one time. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, that we have access into God's presence. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4 that we can come boldly before God's throne. Access to God's presence is better than a mere physical place. I don't have to fly somewhere or drive somewhere to experience God's presence. No, as a child of God, if you're a child of God, are you a child of God? You have a 24-7 standing appointment with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and your Heavenly Father. You can encounter His presence at any moment of the day. There's an element not just of encountering his presence, but experiencing his person. It's a seeing God's glory and living in his power and and sensing his moving and feeling his comfort and knowing his grace, receiving his mercy. Seeing God means you're able to look at a situation and see God all over it. Seeing God can mean that you can look back on your past and you can go, wow, wow. God was even there back then when I was in that. Seeing God means that you can step into a dark situation and go, wow, I get to shine the light of God's glory because I see him everywhere I go. Seeing God is not just knowing facts about God. Seeing God is knowing him. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, and when our intentions are blinded by covetousness or by pride or by impurity of mind of any kind, you know what we'll see everywhere we look? Pain, bitterness. Well, they're out to get me. All you see is suspicion because your heart's not pure. Well, nothing's going my way. All you see is insecurity. Why? Because your heart's not pure. I'm worried about what's going to happen. I'm fearful. I'm afraid. You're seeing those things because your heart's not pure. The pure in heart will see God. Oh, there's an eternality to seeing God that we'll get to in a moment. But I just want you to know that while you're alive on this earth, if your heart is not pure, you'll see everything but God. But when your heart is pure, you won't be able to help but see God. It doesn't say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they might see God. It doesn't say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they can see God. The Bible says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they, say it. Yeah, they will. They shall see God. They'll see Him today. They'll see Him yesterday. They'll see Him tomorrow. And thank God, they'll see Him for all of eternity. What does it mean, pure in heart? What is this crazy thing that we call heart? Heart. Let me define it for you because it can be confusing. The heart is the home of the personal life. Your heart is the seat of feeling, of impulse, of affection, of desire. And aren't you glad that it's the heart? Have you ever thought about that? There, There are a lot of body parts mentioned in the Bible. I'm glad it's the heart that is the seat of our feeling, impulse, and affection. There's one particular verse the reference is escaping me right now, but it talks about bowels of mercy. That's gross. It's like, it's like you're just overflowing with mercy. Everybody say, ew. I mean, can you imagine if it wasn't the heart, but it really was our bowels that were the seat of affection? Like, if that were true, if that were true, it's, it, it's Thursday night at camp. And that guy's out there on the swing with that girl outside the tabernacle. he puts his arm around her. And he says, You move me, baby. Like, no, nobody's saying that. Ugh. No, I'm thankful. I'm so thankful that it's the heart. Like, uh, there is never... <laughs> the, He's never one time going to look at you ladies and say, you make my liver quiver. Like, that's not... mm -mm. I have never, I have never one time seen a Hallmark movie where he leaned in and he said, the passion that I'm feeling in my pancreas right now is just overwhelming. Like, (laughs) never, never. (laughs) It's like, can you imagine if we were rewriting some old love songs? Like, don't tell my bowels, my achy breaky... Like, no, no one's doing that. It's like... I mean just sorry just go with me here it's like I mean can, can you just go just imagine I mean he's it's that time and he goes I love you with both my kidneys like <laughs> mm-mm, mm-mm, no no we're talking about the heart here we're talking about the heart <laughs> The heart, is, it's the core of the human operating system. It's the central nervous system for spiritual activity, like the intangibles of what you feel and what you're compelled to do and who and what you love and the things that you desire all summed up in one body part, your heart. Well, I, we need to understand our heart because as much as I love a good Disney movie, they've been singing songs about follow your heart and you shouldn't. You shouldn't. Let me give you a a quick three part guide to understanding your heart. Uh, Number one, your heart is the well, and your mouth and your life is the spigot. The Bible says in Luke chapter 6, verse 45 that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Sometimes we get into a situation where we're like, I just don't know why I said that. I'll tell you why because it was in your heart. Sometimes we react to a situation and we're like, I don't know, they just came at me and I just went back at them and I don't know where that came from. The Bible says, here's where it came from, it was inside you. What you fill yourself up with will eventually come out your mouth and out of your life. Proverbs 27 says that as water reflects the face, so your life will reflect what's in your heart. You better know that what's in here is eventually going to show up out here. Here's another one. God knows your heart better than you do. In Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9, the Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Rhetorical question, who can know it? The answer is only God can. God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And some of you think that you've got yourself figured out and you know everything about you. But the one who knows you better than even you do is the one who created you. And so you better know that when God's word lays out things for how you ought to think and the way that you ought to live and how you ought to structure your life, even your thought life, you think, well, I don't have to do that because that's not my struggle. Listen, God knows your heart better than you do. Here's another one. If you guard the heart, God will guide the heart. Proverbs chapter 4 says, guard your heart because everything else flows from it. Jeremiah 29 verse 13, God says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'm here to tell you that you'd better guard your heart. Because there's a world out there that wants to fill your eyes and ears with information that will trickle all the way down to your heart. And you better guard it against those things. That's why in Ephesians 6, we're to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We talked this morning about how righteousness is right with God. You'd better make sure that you're right with God. Because when you're right with God and the enemy tries to come at your heart with sinful things, it will be deflected. But friend, if you're not guarding your heart, I'm telling you, God's not guiding it. Well, what, what, what do I do about that, pastor? Because like Proverbs 20 says... Who can say that I made my heart pure and I'm clean from my sin? It's, again, rhetorical question. No one can do that themselves. You can't clean your own heart. You can't. You can't do it by yourself. But Titus chapter 2 says that God is going to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Acts 15 verse 9 says that God cleans hearts by faith. So I want you to know this. Without purity, you can't see God. If your heart's not pure, you can't see God. But in order to know pure of heart, in order to find pure of heart, in order to see some restoration in your heart and let God make it pure again, here's how. Seek Him with all That's quite a bit at stake there. Pure. What's pure? Pure is pretty self-explanatory. It's clean. It's unsoiled. In this context, it could translate clean morally or free from guilt or sincere. But Paul goes ahead in Ephesians chapter 5 and he lays it out plainly. In Ephesians 5 verse number 5, Paul says, You may be sure of this. Now, when Paul says this is a for sure thing, we better lean in. So we're all leaning in. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater. So we're talking about sexually impure, mentally and emotionally impure. Paul says you can be sure of one thing. He has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. You want to know what's at stake? The cost of impurity is hell. The cost of impurity is hell. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Cursed are the impure of heart, for they will see hell. I'm here to tell you. That's what God says in his word. And with all of that at stake, you've got to be wondering, how can I live in purity then? How can I... I want to see God. What does it mean to live a life that's pure? I don't want to just see God in heaven one day. I want to see God in the day I'm living in right now. I want to see God tomorrow when I go home. I want to see God. I don't want to just see God at camp once a year. I don't want to just see God at church on Sunday. I want to see God like Matthew saw God. I want to see God like Jesus said I could see him. How do I live in purity? Paul answers it. Ephesians 5, verse number 15. He says, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but... What's the opposite of foolish? Paul says, understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery. When you drink and you get drunk with wine, it makes you do all kinds of crazy things. Instead... Here's the opposite of that, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Just like drunkenness causes people to unprompted burst out into songs or laughter, likewise, being filled with the Holy Spirit will cause you to unprompted burst out into songs and happiness. Verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right here, Paul lays out three steps toward purity, and you're going to want to write them down. How can I be pure? Three steps. Number one, by filling my mind with the wisdom of God. Right here in verse number 15, look how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise how to fill my mind with the wisdom of God. If you're filling your mind with unclean things, I'm here to tell you there is no garbage disposal for the brain. Once it's in there, it's staying in there. So be careful what you put in there. Have you ever stopped to think about what you think about? Have you ever paused to just consider where it is that you let your mind wander whenever it's idle? You want to be pure? Fill your mind with the wisdom of God and let the wisdom of God be the garbage compactor that takes those things you've already seen and pushes them down to the bottom where God begins to clean and God begins to renew and God begins to restore. Do you want to walk in purity and see God? Fill your mind with his wisdom. Here's the second one. By filling my time with the will of God. Fill your time with the will of God. Of God. Well, what is God's will for my life? Let me just go on record tonight is saying, the will of God is the word of God. You want to know what God's will is for your life in ten years? The Bible's so clear. Do you want to know what your life's gonna look like in ten years? Do you want to walk in God's will in ten years? You wanna be in God's will ten years from now? You want to ten years from now? Let me tell you what to do. Right now, do what God says do today. Proverbs 3. Five and six, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding, but in all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. He'll make your paths straight. And if you want to walk in purity, you've wasted time doing all manner of other things. But let me just ask you, does your screen time report match your scripture time report? Or have you spent 90% more time, maybe 100% more time, scrolling aimlessly and never spending time in God's Word? The will of God is the Word of God. And let me just ask you, have you spent as much time serving the kingdom of God as you've spent serving your selfish interests? Do you take as much time preparing to serve God with excellence as you do preparing your makeup in the morning or preparing your next meal or preparing for the game that you're going to play? I'm here to tell you if you want to walk in purity, you'd better fill your time with the will of God because if you don't fill it with God's will, I'll tell you what, Satan will fill it with his. I want to see God. In order to see Him, I have to seek Him. Occupy your time with God's will. And here's the last one. Submit your emotions to the Holy Spirit's control. Submit your emotions to the Holy Spirit's control. I've harped on it this week for a reason. We're living in a time where we've been given excuse after excuse and they're easy to find people are saying well the reason that you do that is because you're an enneagram number four well the reason you do that is because your parents did the reason you do that is because you grew up on this street no no you get to make your own choices every day And you may battle particular proclivities that you inherited from your surroundings, but I'm here to say that it may look like we're surrounded by all manner of sin, but we can be surrounded by His Holy Spirit when we submit our thought and our mind and our emotion to the Holy Spirit's control. Some of you to anger to control you, and your heart's not pure. And some of you allow lust to control you and your heart's not pure. And some of you allow anxiety and depression to control you. And God says, I've got the answer. Ready? Spend some time hearing from me and talking to me. Well, Paul, Matthew, Jesus, that doesn't sound easy. What's well, not? So Matthew, was it worth it to leave all that money to follow the master? Was it worth it to leave the status and the pleasure? Matthew would say, I'm literally dying to tell you that I saw God and you can too. If you're willing to table your own desires and pursue God's. Friend, tonight, are you willing to lay your identity, skeletons and all, on the table and then leave it there to follow Jesus, never to return? You know, Matthew trusted Jesus with all of his heart, his desires, his feelings, his affections, and he stopped leaning on his own understanding and started learning to trust God's word. He acknowledged Jesus in his ways, and Jesus directed his steps. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hebrews 12, verse 14 says, Strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. I'm here to say that God wants you to be holy. He wants you to live purely so that you can see him. so that in the darkest situation, you can see him there. And so that when you look into the future where everyone else is filled with worry, doubts, fears, and anxieties, you can say, I'm going to see God. And one day, whether sickness or old age finds you on your deathbed where other people are filled with worry, you can say, oh, this is the best because in just a few moments, I'll be seeing. It's going to be great. Every head bowed and every eye closed in the room tonight. Two types of people in the room. Two very clear questions. Number one, has Jesus ever made your heart pure? You can't do it on your own. Have you trusted him? Friend, can I just ask you, has there been a time where you asked Jesus to come into your heart and save you? Have you done that? Have you trusted him? Are you saved? Are you? Hey, if you're in the room tonight and you'd say, Pastor John, I'm not saved. If I were to die tonight, I don't know that I would see God. And when I look around, all I see is pain and stress and problems and sin. There's never been one time where I saw God, and I want that. Tonight, the Holy Spirit has been Speaking to me, I just—I can't get away from it. I've, I've just got this feeling that must be from God. I need to be saved. Is that you? Would you slip up your hand around the room? Raise it high. This is the last night. Don't miss this opportunity to lift it. Hold Hey, leave it up there. Raise it high. This is a bold declaration you're making—an admission of. Bankruptcy and asking Jesus to do something, and your youth pastors are taking note because they can't wait to show you from God's Word how you can see God. Thank you. You can lower them. Because there are some Christians in the room who've trusted Jesus as their Savior, but they're not seeking Him with their life, and they haven't for a while. You're sitting here tonight, and the truth of the matter is when you look around, you see everything but God because your heart's not pure you filled your mind and your emotions with things that are the opposite of Scripture. And tonight, the Holy Spirit's been reminding you of what they are. He's been saying, you need to leave that on the table. You need to leave this on the table. You need to leave them on the table and follow me. Is your heart pure? Would you be honest enough to say, um, before God tonight, hey, Pastor John, I've got some impurity in my heart and the Holy Spirit's been speaking to me tonight some things i need to leave on the table to follow jesus would you lift up your hand boldly tonight hands all over the room thank god for your honesty thank you thank you keep them raised high. in fact i want to ask you to raise both of them just as an act of surrender in this moment as i pray for you we're raising both hands and we're saying father tonight our hands are lifted in surrender we we give up we've been trying to do our own thing and make our own decisions and go our own way and we keep failing and we're, we're raising our hands in surrender tonight saying, God, we give our life to you. Lord, would you purify our hearts and our minds and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to follow you and we're willing tonight. Lord, our hands are raised because tonight we're committing to speak with one of our youth leaders and say, here's what's in my heart. And tonight, I'm leaving it on the table. Help me never go back. Lord, thank you for the promise that if we would let you purify our heart, if we would seek you with our heart, we would find you, that we would see you. God, we can't wait to see you. It's in Jesus' name.